Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello, friends. Welcome. So we have Nicole Ernst with us. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Happy to, happy to be here. Thanks for being here. So I want to um, tell our audience a little bit about you. So this is Nickel, and he is the executive director and co-owner of Summit Achievement. And Summit Achievement is a wilderness program in the White Mountains of Maine. He's on the opposite end of the country from us out in Utah. And he's worked at Summit Achievement for 17 years as a guide staff, a therapist, the clinical director, and the executive director. And despite his different roles that he's had, he's always refused to give up his client caseload. Yeah, which I think is really cool because you can get into administrative positions and just lose your touch, lose your edge. Yeah, but who got in this to be an administrator? Right? Nobody. I've, yeah. I've pushed back several times on purpose. Uh, and your program, your program takes um, teenagers up to age 20. Um, yep, 13 to 20. Yep. Neurotypical and neuro, neurodiverse um, yes. students, or you, I guess you call them clients. I don't know yeah. what you refer to them as. but Yeah, clients, students, either way. And, and I would say kind of our, our overarching umbrella of who we work with is, is typically kids with depression and anxiety. Um, and then there's going to be a lot of maybe issues that, that lead to where is that depression and anxiety coming from, whether that's some kind of neurodiversity or being on the autism spectrum or NLD or, um, you know, maybe it's ADHD or an undiagnosed learning disability of some kind that maybe hasn't been discovered yet or, or a student hasn't learned how to work with. Right. And anxiety and depression are, are for sure the most common mental health um, secondary issues that our students deal with um, as neurodiverse um, teenagers and young adults. A lot of times we see ADHD and OCD as well. Um, or mm-hmm. Obsessive compulsive traits for sure. Yeah, so that's why we had you on your show. On our show, excuse me, is um, so. First of all, you have a very solid reputation in our industry. Everyone that knows Nichols appreciates, respects, and admires you for what you do, what you've done. Uh, you've you built a great reputation for yourself. So thanks for that, and for all the thanks. That's nice to know. You know, when you're hiding in a corner of Maine, you don't always know that. So that's nice to hear. Yeah, and that's good. So I got to ask, how did you get your name Nickel? It's great a- question. So um, my parents are kind of witty, maybe it's part of it. Um, but I was born premature. So so my legal name is Nicholas. And when I was born, I, I was about two and a half pounds. I had two collapsed lungs and spent like a month in, in intensive care. And they wouldn't let me leave until I weighed five pounds. Um, so when they finally let me leave, that kind of became my nickname that stuck. And I've just sort of always been a nickel. Because you were as small as a nickel? Well, I was five pounds, five pounds. Five oh, pounds. there you go. I get it. My bad. Most people get that right away, but that's okay. I'll let that stop. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. That's so good. I've been nickel ever since. Great. Fun. Okay. So I love that I read fun fact about you that you have a farm where you raise pigs and chickens and goats and two small children. <laughs> and two small children. <laughs> yes. <love> that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. You know, the animals stay in the barn and the kids stay in the house, but otherwise there's a lot of similarities, I think. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, being a farmer and, and I don't know if I can say this on a podcast, but I call myself more of a half-assed homesteader, right? It's not something that I do well. I'm not a gentleman. doesn't quite Mm -hmm. fit. Um, But really I I use farming a lot as, as metaphor with clients or to kind of prove points or make examples, right? It's really easy to talk about fences and learning boundaries and things like that. It's it's an approachable way to be human without having to share a whole lot about myself. Right. It sounds like one of your stress relievers too, as a therapist and working in this industry can be intense. And especially if you're passionate, like you are, uh, I do a lot yeah, of there's something about, um, you know, therapy, as you know, is not always the most tangibly rewarding at the end of the day. So to go home and fix a fence, Right, can yeah. can feel good. No, it's done. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The animals yeah. are fed. Yeah, I, yeah. I love being able to to go back and tell you about how some of the students are doing that that you've worked with that you've sent to to Techie for Life, and because I know as a therapist, I I don't know where they go or how they do, and it's nice to get uh nice to get the end of the story or an update on the story. So anyone who's listening, if you've had a, a provider, mentor, therapist, or anybody in your life or your child's life that made a big difference send them a text, send them a note, an email. It will make their day because we really, oh, it is like, it is gold, right. Yeah. To get that email or some of them I even save. And I'm like, I'm going to read yeah. this on that day when I really need this. I've got yeah. a whole file just of those and I keep them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the best thing we ever started doing at summit is we have an annual reunion where we invite all of our alumni back. Um, and it's awesome to see who shows up 10 years later, 20 years later, um, yeah. come back and tell us, you know, how we impacted them in some way. And, and, you know, we might be sitting there being like, I think we asked that kid to leave, right? Did they even finish? But, but somehow it was impactful to them and they wanted to come back and tell us about how much they learned. Yeah. It's funny. They stay in contact when they're happy and doing well, and they seem to disappear when they're ashamed and embarrassed. That seems like a common thing as well. Sometimes. Well, tell us about- Sometimes when people ask me about outcomes, right? And of course, we track all of our outcomes and do all those things. But one of the outcomes I give parents a lot is I have now seen over a dozen Summit Achievement tattoos on alumni. Oh, wow. Nice. That somehow include our, our logo or something. Where I'm like, tell, wow, me that is- tell me it's yeah. your face on there. No, I haven't seen that yet. No. All right. Well, it'll come. tell tell us a little bit about summit achievement and what it is a lot of our parents have never heard of a wilderness program they really don't know what the goal is they think military school um they think they think boot camp or they or they think you know death and near-death experiences with dehydration and marches so what is it you do because this might be the first time a lot of parents have heard about a wilderness program. That's, that is a great question. And, and frankly, I think if you get on the internet and, and the field of people who call themselves, you know, wilderness therapy programs has not always done a great job. Um, and, and so some of those things that, that parents may be afraid of have occurred in this field, especially, you know, a couple of decades ago. So what I always encourage families to think about when they're looking at wilderness programs is to look out, um, OBH is the Outdoor Behavioral Healthcare Council, and we have an accreditation through the Association of Experiential Education. And I always say that, you know, the most reputable wilderness programs are the ones that carry that AEE accreditation through OBH. And it's a really great place to look at programs that are safe um, 
and you know have really let up people come in and observe them and, and go through that accreditation process. Um, I'll, I'll link to that in your show notes. So that'd be good. Parents can find what's up? I have to say, my experience lately in the last five or ten years is that the wilderness, the wilderness program field or culture environment has come so far. And if there's a bad program, word gets out quickly and they're they're out of business. And I don't it's so competitive now that yeah. only the best programs survive, those who really do a good job, um, because there's there's anything and everything you can find on the internet. People talk. And it's twenty true. years ago, bad eggs survived some, but but they yeah. can't do that anymore. I I think that's a good thing. It's true. And, you know, we are we are 24 years old, which um, I think in the world of schools and boarding schools in the Northeast doesn't sound very old. But I think it makes us the I, know, the, I believe, the third oldest wilderness program in the country that's still operating. Right. Um, one of the other I think is that the oldest one was at Anasazi because that's where I worked. I As believe that Anasazi and Red Cliff are older than us. I yeah. Guess the two. Yep. And I was a trail guide for wilderness. I love wilderness. I can't say enough about it. I'm sure I'll share my opinions, but I'd love to hear from you. Please. So, so I think that to get more to the specifics of what is it and why would you send your kid to wilderness? You know, I, I think for many clients, especially neurodiverse clients, like going and doing talk therapy, it just, it's not always working, right? You can go into a therapist's office for an hour a week and, you know, maybe not really have the language or know how to talk about what's going on for you. You can just not say anything about what's happening for you, or you can tell the therapist what you think they want to hear and then go back to doing whatever you want, right? Like a lot of times it's tricky to get particularly adolescents to engage and find value in that process. Um, one of the great advantages about taking people out in the wilderness is that you just can't hide who you really are, right? There's something about um, hiking, and maybe being a little cold or a little uncomfortable or a little hungry um, and having to be part of a team and a group that, you know, just who you really are and, and both your strengths and your weaknesses come out much more. So right. as a clinician, you know, you get all this feedback and data about your clients that, that you would never get in an outpatient setting or even in a really comfortable residential setting. Um, so to speak to, to safety and some of those other things you brought up, um, there's also a, a great link, Debbie, if you're going to link things. Um, OBH has a research center, and there's a lot of studies that have actually shown that, that participating in outdoor behavioral health or wilderness programs is significantly safer than most high school sports. Um, and most kids are actually safer in a wilderness program than they are at home, just because. <laughs> Especially with their parents who are about to go off the cliff or at their, at their wits end, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I would even challenge in the day of COVID-19, a lot of adolescents are having a more normative experience here in our programs than they might be at home Yeah, uh, because of restrictions and things like that. So, you know, so, so safety is obviously paramount, but it's a lot of perceived risk, right? And, and what we often talk about is safe struggle. This idea that I can be pushed a bit out of my comfort zone because I don't have access to my technology. And I, I'm out in the woods and I have to sleep out here. And maybe there's some bugs and some things that are slightly physically uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, it's by working through safe struggle that we learn how to overcome adversity, right? If, if all of the challenges that exist on our life's path are removed for us, 
we never learn or strengthen the muscles that are necessary to overcome challenges that come our way. Um, and, and so that's, the, that's, I think, where wilderness is so powerful. Um, there's just a lot of research, too, that just people being in the outdoors has some effects on anxiety yeah. and depression. For sure. um, when you mix in some clinicians and a treatment plan and a lot of intention with that, I, I think it kind of takes that, that experience and, and, you know, accelerates it that much more. I think people maybe sometimes imagine that their that their child or that they're going to be out there kind of just wandering around, uh, maybe trying to find food. And I love the use use the word intentional. Uh, that is so important. And to be a good wilderness program these days, uh, intentionality. I can't tell parents how much work goes on behind the scenes for every client that comes into one of these specialized programs yeah. like wilderness. Yeah. Um, what I look and, for. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, what I look for from a wilderness program for our students coming in or for what I want for young adults is one, they need, they need to learn they can do hard things. Resilience is huge. And if they go to wilderness first, that resilience comes out and we see what they really can do. How much can you push them? How much can they bend and flex? Um, their rigidity gets shown, like you said, their buttons. So rigidity is a big one. Willingness, submissiveness, um, and we look at submissive as maybe a negative word in our culture, but the reality is to jump through the hoops and go to work um, or to jump through the hoops and do the dishes when you're supposed to, that's, that's not submissiveness in a weak way. That takes a lot of maturity and responsibility. So I look for those two things. One of our favorite scenes is get out of your comfort zone, but not overwhelmed. We don't want them in yeah. crises, but we want them to think they could be, or we, we want them right on that edge for change to occur. Exactly. Because we don't change when we're comfortable. Right? right. I mean, there's no reason to. So it takes a little bit of discomfort, I think, to push us to think about yeah. change. Um, the other it? piece I would add for families who are new to wilderness is, is just very basically that there are, you know, different models of how wilderness programs work. And, and very generally, there's more of a primitive skills model, which, which tends to be more prevalent out where you all are in, in Utah, where, you know, it is a bit more nomadic and sort of um, traveling in the desert and, and, you know, more primitive gear and things like that. Whereas out here on the East coast where the weather maybe is a little more extreme, um, you know, we're doing much more of a mountaineering kind of outward bound based expedition model where our kids have much more high tech modern gear and we're doing more kind of summiting peaks and going from point A to point B, um, right, right. just a little bit different. And, and to, to talk a little bit more specifically about summit for a second, because our model is relevant in that when we started back in 1996, you know, th there were a lot of wilderness programs where kids were in the woods all the time or out in the desert. And one of the things that our founders struggled with was seeing those kids then try and translate those skills back to, you know, say a boarding school in New England or, or just a normal school environment that the ability to translate those skills didn't always exist and there had been no practice. So Summit at its very inception, you know, I like to say we've had a hybrid model longer than Toyota because we beat the Prius by a couple of years. Um, and, you know, so what our clients do is they're in school three days a week and then they go out in the woods four days a week. And, and for us, it's always been so important to have that, you know, you go and have this transformative experience in the wilderness. But what really matters is how do you apply that to Monday morning? How do you apply that to school? And right. I think even more so as we talk about neuro neurodiverse clients, um, you know, a lot of times the metaphor of wilderness is going to be lost on them, right? And, and it's how do I take 
you know, exactly what I learned or this skill set and apply it, right? How do I come back and, and do this in school and do family sessions and have to get up and get out of bed in a comfortable warm cabin at, at the same time as, you know, how do I translate that to going back into the wilderness? And so that sort of dunk and dry model, as Kurt Hahn from Outward Bound called it, I think is, is just right. been crucial to our program since its inception. How, how long is someone in a wilderness program typically? It's a great question. Our average is about eight weeks. Um, I think the average nationally for wilderness programs is a little bit higher than that. Like eight to eight to 12 weeks. Is, I think, yeah, 10 to 12 is probably more the average of most programs. Why not uh, more and why not less? Why, why eight weeks? Good question. So for us, we have a, we have six levels because as part of our piece of um, helping clients in our model is, is we really believe that one of the challenges for a lot of kids, especially with anxiety, is handling the challenges that life throws at you, right? And, and being overwhelmed sometimes by all the responsibilities that I have. So we have very clear expectations for our clients and, and we kind of hand them on day one, here are all the things we're gonna expect you to accomplish to graduate this program. And we are gonna help you do it. Um, and it's overwhelming and we're gonna practice breaking it down and all the executive functioning skills that, that maybe come with you know, dealing with this, right? Sort of similar to a syllabus at the beginning of the semester. If you look at all those assignments, it's really overwhelming. But right. as we learn right. how to break it down and take it one step at a time. So our students kind of are, are the masters of their own length of stay. Um, if they do the six levels in six weeks, they, they, they can leave in six weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we really want to give them that power to do that in some ways, which is different than other models that sort of withhold future information and sort of say, you know, you're here to do your process and don't worry about it. And a really good system um, that I've seen, a really good system, is, you can tell is a good system because it, the levels that the students accomplish or clients accomplish is based more on how they are, not just paperwork and what they do and how they've becoming or changing willfulness, belonging, attachment. And so yeah. when there's checklists of things they can do, they can just coast through the, the steps and check the boxes. Well, and I think it, it's a mix of both, right? Because I think part of life, I mean, most of our kids are leaving us to go back to a school, right? And part of being in school is kind of checklists and assignments. Right. Uh, but of course, the, the therapeutic nature of what we do, you know, is a lot more of those less tangible things. So, so the way our level system set up is at the earlier levels, a lot of it is a little more concrete. Um, one, so that kids learn the skills they need to be able to be successful in the backcountry. But also it gets that buy-in, right? Like I'm accomplishing things. And maybe I haven't had a lot of accomplishments and praise and, and rewards yeah. in a while. Um, and then as we get that buy-in and they built the relationship with us after a couple of weeks, the work becomes much more kind of generalized and focused on, you know, are they a good citizen? And how are they doing showing empathy and initiative and some of these other things? Right. How do you know what a successful outcome looks like for you? You have outcome studies. What does that look like when they come out of wilderness? It's a great question. So, so we've been tracking our outcomes since the late 90s. And when we compile all of, all of that data, and it's on our website, um, you know, we use a youth outcome questionnaire, which is a questionnaire that's been uh, kind of universally adopted through OBH and, and NATSAP programs, which is the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs. Um, the, 
you know, it's a, it's kind of a measuring of symptoms, right? And, and what parents and clients are identifying. And what we see is, is most clients come in pretty acute, right? They're, they're struggling um, when they come to wilderness. That's what sort of precipitates coming here. Um, at discharge, they're often feeling fantastic, right? They've sort of had that realization and they're feeling great. Um, and then what we see is about six months out, maybe they're struggling a little bit more than the day of discharge, but doing much better than intake. And about a year out, they tend to be closer to where they were at discharge, right? It sort of takes time. Um, that's sort of the more concrete measure. So we see a significant reduction in symptoms and, and clients' ability to navigate the challenges and, and you know, relapses that come as they head out in life. So I'm wondering, and I know this is a, a question that a lot of parents like have and struggle with, mm-hmm. with, and, ha- and I'm wondering how you guys handle it with how do you approach if you have students or clients that are under the neurodiverse umbrella and then like the regular neurotypical population, are they combined? You separate them out. How do you handle that? I know it's always a thing that comes up. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we are a really small program. I mean, we are, we are full at 24 to 28 students max ever. Um, and so we don't, we don't necessarily separate, you know, more sort of neurotypical from neurodiverse students. And I, I think one of the things that I think is so effective for, for neurodiverse clients is, is many of them struggle with social skills and struggle to get the maybe, maybe helpful constructive feedback that would be useful for them to learn because so often I feel like these clients struggle to maybe, maybe they can realize that they made a mistake socially, but they don't always know what they did. And it can be really hard for them to figure out how do I translate this experience to the next experience that, that maybe to, to an observer might look really similar, but often to them looks totally different for, for some reason. Um, and so having a, a mixed group where there are kids that maybe have some more typical social skills um, and the structure to be able to provide that feedback in, in the moment or that day where a client can really start to learn, um, you know, some of their patterns or some of the things that they're seeing. Because I think what happens so often with our neurodiverse clients is, you know, maybe they've connected with some adults who they feel really comfortable with. You hear a lot that like, oh, you know, they're great with adults, but they don't have any friends. And, and a big piece of that, I think, is that adults sometimes are willing to forgive the social missteps that their peers are not. And, and outside of a program, their peers can just walk away or not interact with them or not include them. Um, but in a program, they're stuck together um, in a place where, you know, their peers are going to see the strengths of this kid, right? And what they're able to contribute and offer, but also recognize that, hey, maybe one of the things that he's working on is how he communicates, how he's feeling or how he, you know, interacts socially. And that's something we can help him with and give him some feedback on. So to have, you know, daily process groups and individualized uh, therapeutic goals where, you know, for example, can have a client get feedback every day on his use of tone, tact, and timing, right? Or some of that paraverbal communication that so often neurodiverse kids don't even acknowledge exists without some education and and teaching them some of those things. I'm going to have to use that now, tone, tact, and timing. We talk about the three three T's a lot, tone, tact, and timing. I've never heard that before. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I, all of my students need that. <laughs> it's so helpful, right? And, and then just breaking it down for them. I, I often have them like 
give definitions of tone, tact, and timing to their peers, and then sort of, how am I doing with these things? And the team gets into it. Um, you know, it's a really concrete way. Because, for example, if I have a client who um, maybe struggles in the relationship with their parents, or maybe has been acting out with some substance use, that's not coming up every moment of every day in our program. But boy, a client who struggles with social skills or interactions with others, we're going to get so much grist for the mill on the daily basis to help them process that. I love that. Did that I love answer that. your question? Yeah, that was great. And you, and you even spoke to like how you incorporate that, that peer feedback, because I think for a lot in this population, they, they really have struggled with peer relationships and being bullied and, and to be able to receive peer feedback that is useful and yeah, we love involving peer feedback because it's easier for them to see the flaws in others more than themselves. So you start with making them give feedback to their peers, and then after a while, they start seeing it in themselves, and it works. That's yeah. really important. And then I, I would say the other piece that, that's so important about many of our neurodiverse clients come in, and transitions are hard, right? Going to school Monday morning is hard. But changes to routine are hard. So, so oftentimes, these clients might struggle more initially with accepting being here. But then, because they like routine and structure, and, and programs like ours are very structured and routine, they get really good at it. Um, and, and, you know, within a couple of weeks, they have the system dialed of, like, when we get up and when this happens and what we're supposed to do. And they can really help guide other students. And, and the, some of the neurotypical students really start to appreciate how skilled these clients may be at, at helping them navigate our, our system. And there's, because there's that structured routine to the, to the environment, um, it's really helpful when you struggle socially to have a prescribed time where you give positive and constructive feedback to your peers or where you weigh in and give them feedback on how they're doing with their week or you know, some of the structured nature of a therapeutic program on a daily basis gives these kids opportunities to, to practice social skills in a more prescribed way that makes it feel safer to, to take some risks. Right. I love that. So what are, what are some of the challenges that your neurodiverse clients have that are the most common patterns that you see? Um, what are they coming from? I think we, we always know that there's some uh, technology obsession or addiction and yeah. maybe some pot use. What, what do you see? Well, certainly technology addiction. Um, I, I also, you know, we see a lot of clients, particularly female clients, who have never been diagnosed before or have kind of no idea what's going on for them. Um, and, and so I think that one of the things we see a lot is um, maybe coming to our program is the first time that we're really to help a, help a family and, and, and child understand what's going on in a way that can help them better understand themselves and where their strengths are. You mean in regards um, to their diagnosis? Yeah, like, like maybe understanding that they might be on the autism spectrum or they might have a nonverbal learning disorder or something that just no one's ever said to them. A lot of times all they've heard is, you're so smart, why can't you just do better in school? Right. Uh, you know, and, and maybe it's because they're verbally gifted, but they really struggle uh, when it comes to writing assignments and reading and executive functioning and all those other things. So right. people are saying, you're so smart, you're just lazy. Um, and really helping them understand that some of that might be actually how they learn. Right. And when their IQ is over 120, but they can't do a simple task 
or right. follow through, or they could do it last week, but they can't do it this week. People just, right. they, we just don't comprehend generally what neurodiverse means and what some of the symptoms and issues are with it. Yeah. And then I think you, you pile on sometimes years of like shame and guilt and internalizing this thing that I'm lazy and people think I just need to try harder, but I don't know how. Um, why wouldn't I retreat to video games or something where I can find more immediate success? Absolutely. Uh, There's another podcast that we're doing coming up is on the layers and levels of um, dysfunction, issue, problem. And the primary one being that their brain is different, which in and of yeah. itself has some issues, but isn't all that bad. But then the traumas, abuses, deprivations that come from being a square peg in a round world. And then the self-loathing comes and then that whole cycle. And we have to overcome all three of those. Um, and that, that happens between age 15 and 24. And yeah. that's a lot of crap to deal with. Yeah, well said. It sure is. I, I would say the other pattern that we've seen a lot of is, um, you know, one of my biggest fears when it happens, and it happens a lot, is, is that our neurodiverse clients somewhere along the way find marijuana. Um, and, and we have seen a real connection between those two. And, and I think on, on the one hand, it makes sense, right? Like here is a, a client who struggles to interact socially with others and maybe suffers from some social anxiety. And boy, if you get with a group of people who are smoking marijuana, all of a sudden, everyone's social skills are a little bit, you know, less sharp, right? Mm -hmm. There's an ability to connect. And all of a sudden you have this prescribed ritual and thing that you can talk about and you can do, and you can all focus around, you know, when you're going to smoke and where you're going to smoke and how you're going to get it and what kind of and all this stuff, right? There's this yeah. way to have this identity that can really work for some neurodiverse clients in terms of it feels like it fixes all of their problems. Yeah. And it does temporarily. Yeah, at least temporarily, right? And I think a lot of, um, so, you know, I've seen a number of clients who get really entrenched in that belief in that nothing works like that and nothing's going to help them except marijuana, even though it may be causing a lot of problems for them, whether legally or with their family um, or with school or something like that. And, and I think it's it, it can be challenging to kind of Un, un, undo and help them find other things that work as well once they get really hooked on marijuana use. Yeah. I think it's really important in understanding that for parents to be aware of that and why it's appealing. They're not a bad kid or being, it's, it's not rebellious yeah. reasons either. It's more just like wanting to fit somewhere and they're trying to meet their needs. Have a social yeah, need met. Trying to meet yeah, I, I, I mean, if you can't, for example, if you're kind of this awkward, quirky kid and all of a sudden, you're the, your particular area of interest becomes marijuana and you know everything about it and how to get it and all this stuff, you're going to have some friends, right? It may not be the right friends or the right group, but that can be really validating. Kids. Right. And so it does take some work to help them understand the challenges that may exist. For them. One of the patterns and trends that we're seeing is we're getting more and more diagnoses on the spectrum or neurodiverse older and older. Why do you think that is? What's going on? You mean they're getting diagnosed for the first time older and yeah. older? Yep. I, I think that um, one, you know, like I remember when it was like 
everyone was getting diagnosed with PDD NOS and, yep. and all these things, right? Like pervasive development disorder, not otherwise specified. Or, um, you know, I, I think that since kind of Asperger's and all of these things have started to fall under the autism spectrum, there does, like part of it is that there seems to be more of an awareness of, of you know, these neurodiverse traits and, and what they might be. Um, and, and, you know, it seems like that that spectrum, if you will, has gotten a little bit broader over time. Yeah, a bigger umbrella for sure. Yeah, in terms of what clinicians are willing to identify or talk about, um, that seems to be a real piece of it. And I don't know, um, I, I mean, I, I, I guess I wonder, again, I, I think we see a lot of girls get diagnosed later in life. I, I think sometimes that gets missed more often in female clients for some reason. Yeah. Um, and then what's up you're a little better at masking yeah i think i think generally speaking you know female clients often have more sophisticated social skills even if they have some deficits um, right. it just doesn't come out as well for parents who are wondering when would you say it's it's ready and it's time to do a wilderness intensive because it's it's pretty restrictive it's expensive mm-hmm. Um, it's a big commitment. When would you say, yeah, your, your child or you aren't ready for wilderness or you don't necessarily need wilderness? How do you determine who would or benefit? When you really when? do need. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I, I think that, um, you know, usually when families come to us, it's when they're really struggling to function on a daily basis, right? So we work with a lot of school refusal. Or, um, you know, maybe there's just been a pattern of kind of heading in the wrong direction um, in, in terms of things are getting worse, not better. And things like, you know, intensive outpatient therapy or, or, or you know, weekly sessions or biweekly sessions with the therapist just are not working and a student's not engaging. You know, that's often a time to start thinking about it. Um, as expensive as wilderness programs are, and, and we do have some challenges with, with getting insurance reimbursement, um, you know, we are far less expensive than an inpatient hospital setting. Um, and, you know, I would argue that we're quite a bit more effective. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think that there's also a spectrum in, in terms of wilderness programs and sort of how far down the rabbit hole you might be before you engage in, in those services. Um, yeah. For example, we don't take clients that are involuntarily transported. Um, you know, we want students to come to us at least willing to get in the car and come with their parents and do this experience. Right, and I think right. that um, in, in my eyes, that's a really important part of this process is, is a family being able to actually get their child here and, and work with them. And, and that's something we haven't talked about yet is just the, the family component of all of this. Um, you know, students and kids, they don't exist in a vacuum, right? They exist within a family system. Um, and so, you know, we really try and look at this system as, as our client. Um, and in addition to making the, the child go through six levels and be here in our program, um, we have a whole curriculum for our parents and we have a full-time parent coach who is bringing them through six levels of their own. So, so we have a curriculum where we're giving them homework assignments and doing weekly sessions with them. Um, we also do weekly family sessions uh, with the child and their parents the whole time that they're here. Um, 
So we're a little unusual for a wilderness program that a, a child will be talking to their parents week two. Um, and then when it's not the era of COVID, by week three or four, we are asking families to come here, take their child overnight and go to a hotel and spend the night together and then come back and do an in-person family session and okay. talk about all that. Um, so, you know, we believe strongly that if you can't change the family system a little bit, then if you go home, things probably aren't going to be that different, right? Like right. it takes more right. than just the kid changing. Um, and particularly with neurodiverse clients, I think a lot of what we end up doing is, is education for parents and helping them really understand what's going on for their child and, and developing some empathy, but also some strategies that, that maybe help them understand what works for them sometimes. Yeah, I think when parents are in crises, the natural state is to think, okay, who's the problem? Um, mm -hmm. Well, you know, my, my child has a, a disability or a diagnosis of a pretty severe difference. And man, it can't be their fault. It's got to be our fault. Or, and then who's the identified client? Who's the problem? And once we can get past, there's, there's nobody's the problem. It's not that you're the fault or the cause, but you can be the solution. You're the only one who can decide to love yourself, or you're the only one who can change the environment that your child goes back to. Um, so it's really a partnership and we got to get past the shame and the blaming, the self-loathing, emotionally process through that. Yeah, you're, you've been in crises and it sucks and we're going to be okay. That's a yeah. big shift to get them out of crises and stuck to get them moving forward is to no longer find who, who's the cause or the blame to the problem. Yeah, that's very well said. And I think for so many of our parents, particularly with neurodiverse children is, is, you know, they, they've often done a lot of rescuing or trying to help them get through it. You know, they have some awareness that maybe their child doesn't do as well socially or has some struggles and, and they've done a lot to sort of smooth the path for them or help them sometimes along the way. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of our work is, is helping families understand, again, this idea of safe struggle um, and being able to not let their own anxiety lead to them stepping in and, and trying to fix things. Um, you know, many of these clients will come to us at maybe 17, 18, 19, and, you know, one of their parents is still kind of making their lunch and laying out their clothes and doing all of these things for them that, you know, maybe were totally appropriate when they were a lot younger, but that patterns persisted because they struggle and they're trying to help them. Um, and, you know, how do we come up with a system and help them develop a way to sort of let their child have a safe struggle that's more age appropriate to figure out how to pick my clothes or how to make my lunch. Right. I love, I love that the parents that we work with, they really have done the things that they had to do to get their kid through high school. And, and actually mm -hmm. some of them, if they don't do their laundry and lay it out, the kid's going to be late for school. They're going to miss the bus. They're going to miss for spirit. Yeah. It yeah. just sets up a domino effect. So you know, parents who really are helicopter parenting, I don't blame them at all because they're, they are the executive functioning for their child. Yeah. Um, and, and it's hard, but then there comes a place where the parents, if they're a part of the equation, their child can't progress anymore. And, and there does need to be a split and an autonomy. And, um, so. Well, I, th I think a lot of that with parents is helping them recognize their own, like, emotional buy-in to that, right? Like, I think it is often their anxiety or even their need to sort of be needed, right? I mean, th this pattern gets developed that, that I think it's not, you know, some of them have a lot of shame and guilt about what they're doing and, and that's not as healthy as just figuring out how do we, 
how do we move past this? I, I think every parent wants their child neurodiverse or not to be able to function as an adult, right? So how do we help them take the steps to start moving in that direction? Yeah. So I would love to hear if you have any examples of a client that that was struggling, you know, a neurodiverse client that was struggling that made progress that surprised you, or if you if there's been things that have been really effective that surprised you that made a difference. Yeah, you know, I think that um, there are so many over the years. I, I would say that um, probably the most important thing is, is helping them really find the adults that they connect with, right? Like that that charismatic mentor, whoever that is for them, whether that's their therapist, whether that's me, whether that's a guide staff. Um, but, you know, it seems like these clients more than others really need that like safe adult touchstone that they can come to and, and who they really trust to give them feedback and, and navigate that process. Like um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I told an example this morning in a staff training where I remember a client of mine that was on the spectrum and in his first expedition, I went out with him and his, his particular area of interest was building rockets. Right. And I hiked with him and learned about everything I possibly could about rockets. <laughs> I don't care about rockets. Right. But it was kind of cool and I was interested. And, you know, I think the rule as a therapist sometimes is, hey, if this is what you want to talk about. Let's talk about it. Right. Sure. And it came to, you know, fast forward a number of days and he didn't move up in our level system. And he had kind of a tough first family session and he was really dysregulated. And I mean, he picked up a rock and was threatening staff with a rock, which is pretty unusual for our clients to have that happen here. Um, and all the staff were trying to work with him and to get him to put the rock down and talk. And I was able to just walk up as a therapist and say, hey, do you want to go to my office and talk? And he was like, yes. And he started crying and he dropped the rock and we went to my office and were able to process. And, you know, the, some of the staff later were like, I would have talked. You know, and, and my response to them was, you didn't spend six hours learning about rockets. Right? <laughs> I think taking that time to yes. get interested. I mean, you know, I know all kinds of stuff about level 86 of World of Warcraft. Um, yeah. You know, I think that piece is important. And, and this kid to this day, he, I think he's almost 30 years old now. Every once in a while, we still get on a Zoom and he shows me his latest rocket. And, and I mean, he's like professionally building rockets. And nice. nice. And, um, you know, so I think being able to engage with whatever is that area of interest for them is a really important piece. Um, I think where that gets tricky is, is going back to marijuana use. I have had some clients who, you know, their particular kind of area of interest really becomes marijuana. And I think that's a trickier one. Um, but where I've really seen some growth with that is when they can sort of become receptive to that psychoeducation about what is autism, let's say, and, and, Oh, you know, this really is, my particular area of interest and maybe I'm not that rational in assessing my own marijuana use and, and sort of allowing them to, to gain that understanding that like, Oh, maybe I should listen to some other folks here because I, I'm not in a place to make a good decision. Right. That's cool. right. So Nickel, what is something that you are really passionate about in what you do every day? What are you passionate about? We'd love to hear about what makes you excited about getting up in the morning. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things. Um, but I think in terms of what we do here, I would say, you know, one of the things that's so powerful about an experience like this 
is that our program like this is we get to see a lot of growth happen in a shorter amount of time. Um, you know, I spent some time as an outpatient therapist and yeah, you saw clients grow, but it was very slow and gradual and a lot of setbacks. Um, it is just awesome to be in a setting where, you know, I can observe my clients in a group, part of a community. I can observe them in school and I can see them out in the wilderness. And, you know, I know that they're taking their medication as prescribed. I know they're not using substances. Like there's just a, a it's such a rich environment to really do assessment and figure out what's going on for a client, but also really help them make some changes and some growth in, in a quicker amount of time. I, I often say if we didn't have a wilderness portion, I think we'd have a, a six or eight month minimum instead of an eight week. Right. I love watching the lights, the lights go off. Yeah. That's the piece that's so fun. And, and so often, you know, I think my other favorite thing is when, they give my words back to me as their own epiphany or idea. Right? Like maybe we had this, you know, I've kind of threw out an idea, like, what do you think of this? And they're like, oh, that's stupid, right? And then a week later, they're like, oh, you know, I realized something. And, um, you know, I, yeah. to me, that's when we've done our best work, when we've helped a client kind of come to a realization, but they feel like they got there on their own. Yeah, and the parents, you tell them about it on their next parent call. And they're like, I've been telling them that for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen to me. Right. right. There's the power of not being dad. Or That's mom, exactly. It's pretty effective. Yeah. 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 Well, what else haven't we addressed or talked about that you'd like to bring up or that you'd like to share? You know, that's a good question. I guess the other thing, I mean, if I can, if I can talk about, so we have a continuum of care here. That in addition to our achievement program, we also have a program called Summit Traverse. And, and I share it because it was something we created about 10 or 12 years ago, because we saw a lot of clients finishing wilderness programs um, and needing a little bit more time, right? They weren't quite ready to go home. Um, they needed to practice these skills a little bit more. Like the metaphor I often give is, is students finish wilderness and they are really determined to make some changes and maybe they're even starting to make them kind of like someone who's decided for a new year's resolution that they're going to join the gym, right. To give a metaphor. And then, you know, that's a different skill set than going to the gym three days a week, early in the morning in April. Right. You know, and continuing to do that. And so I think a lot of our clients struggle when they leave wilderness with how do I maintain this change over time? Right. Like the maintenance stage of change is very different than that, like initial determination and action. Um, And so, you know, at least 10 or 12 years ago, all of the therapeutic boarding schools and and programs that existed were really long. Right. They were 12 or 18 month commitments. And we had a lot of clients who just needed a little more time. Um, So we created our Summit Traverse program, which is essentially a short term therapeutic boarding school. It's an additional two, three, four months. where students can stay with us, go to school five days a week, um, do kind of more normative activities on the weekend, and practice going home for up to a week at a time. Um, and, and, you know, that's just been really helpful, particularly for some of our neurodiverse clients who, again, sometimes struggle to extrapolate one experience to another, right? And a lesson learned here may not be the same as, as this experience that's slightly different. And so, you know, that ability to practice things to, you know, you can talk a lot and plan for going home and not, you know, maybe 
locking yourself in your room and playing video games all day, but it's different when you actually go home for a week and you're bored and that video game console is right upstairs. Um, you know, how does that go? And so the opportunity to practice some of that and then come back to us um, yeah. has been really effective. Oh, I think that transition is so huge that you're tra describing with your tra traverse is the summit traverse. Is that the summit traverse? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And actually our, our outcomes have shown that kids that do traverse are doing better at discharge, better at six months and better at a year after than kids who do achievement. Alone. Oh, right. Yeah. So how can people find you uh, and, and learn more about the program you're at? And well, certainly we have a website, which is www.summitachievement.com. Um, we have a YouTube channel that has a lot of videos of, of staff and clients and people talking about what we do. Um, people are, are welcome to email me directly at nickel at summitachievement.com. Um, you know, we're always happy to talk about what we do and if this would be a good fit for your child or not. And, and our commitment is that if... Um, you know, if we don't feel like Summit's a good fit, we're at least going to point you in a direction, whether that's to an educational consultant or a couple of websites or at least give you another step to find the place that might be right. And I, I think that's accurate. I, one of the things that I respect about you is you're in this for the, the result and the clients that you serve. And there's a, a sense of integrity that if you stick to the students that you know are a good profile fit for you. They do well, you do well, and it's it's ethical and professional, and it's in it's integrity to refer them to somewhere else. And I I think anyone that called you or us, they would get that same approach. And I think most of the people in our profession are that way. And so it's yeah, it says a lot about you. You know, it's a it's a passion for us, and and I think that um, you know I didn't set out into this field to own a program. That wasn't my goal. But I, I think I saw a trend in this field of, of a lot of programs being bought by venture capital firms or, or you know, larger corporations. Um, and while there are certainly benefits to that, my, my fear has always been that at some point, you know, maybe there's a tension that exists between sort of profit and, and shareholder profit and, and quality treatment. Um, and I think I knew myself well enough to know that that wasn't the right world for me. Um, so that's why I guess three or four years ago now, you know, me and another longstanding employee and one of the original founders bought Summit Achievement. The original right. Um, All right. And actually put in our bylaws that to be an owner, you have to be a full-time. That's great. That's great. And I agree. The best, the best way to keep a business open is to provide a really good product. And if you're profit focused, the product goes away and then the profit goes away too. So the best way we can serve a lot of people is to stay in business and give a really good product, so. Definitely, yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on. No problem. This was so informative, and I think a lot of parents have not even, didn't even know that this kind of a program exists, and and uh, anyway, the components of what make it so effective, so I really appreciate it. And Well, thanks again, right, and we'll talk to you, you soon. All right, sounds great. Thank you both, thanks again. Right. I'm, I'm honored to be on this, and that was fun. Thank <laughs> Thanks, Nicole. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Take care, you two. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, 
come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com. 